I, I love this business. I love working with partners. I love what partners can do for vendors because they see around corners. They have these superpowers of customer connectivity and they cut through the clutter in terms of what is needed for a customer. I've spent my entire career in the partner realm and it has been such a joy for me. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Menzione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders in this forum to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Menzione. Welcome to, or welcome back to The Ultimate Guide to Partnering. I'm Vince Menzion, your host. And for this episode of the podcast, I was delighted to welcome a friend and a fellow channel leader, Mark Monday, Citrix Global Partner, Go-To-Market Program Leader. In this episode, Mark and I discuss Citrix and their value to partners, the state of the channel and what we've both been seeing since this transformation began, and advice for channel chiefs and all of our listeners on optimizing for success in 2021. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I enjoyed my time with Mark Monday. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Vince, man, I am so stoked to be here. I have been a fan forever. We've been friends for a long time, and I'm just super privileged to be here and humbled. Well, I am so excited to welcome you as a guest, Ultimate Guide to Partnering. As you said, you and I have had the chance to work together. We've been friends for some time. We worked together at Microsoft and have continued our friendship. I mean, you've gone on to amazing roles, channel leadership roles, and some really terrific organizations. And now you lead Citrix Global Partner Go-To-Market Programs. So I'm so excited to have you here, first as a friend, but also as another channel leader as a guest today. So welcome. Yeah, I'm just going to have to be careful because I'm a little bit of a fanboy and I don't want to fanboy out too much. So <laughs> I just enjoy this podcast so much and the folks that you've had on have been so amazing. Again, I'm, I'm humbled to be here and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today and learn through the process. Well, I'm excited to have you as well. We share a common set of experiences and passions. It's just great to have a friend here to have a conversation about what we've all been experiencing, what we've all been doing around this world of partnering, and just life in general. Great to have you. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. So you and I have both been around the channel for some time, and we just mentioned this. And you, you know, we'll deep dive in this whole concept of partner and channel in a little bit, but for our listeners that might not know Citrix, can you share with them a little bit more about the organization and also the essence of your role? For sure. For sure. Citrix is a fantastic company. For 30 years, we've basically helped people work remotely, millions of customers around the globe, around the planet. And it's really about secure remote access and then able to access your content from anywhere, which sounds familiar, right? It's where we've been for the last year. And so this year has been so amazing because we've been in this business for 30 years in terms of secure remote working. And this was the year of remote working. So it couldn't have been a better time. The other thing that I love about Citrix is it's really focused on making sure that organizations enable their people to do their best work. And that's one of the things you'll hear us talk about or hear me talk about today is it really is about the people. The technology is there to free people 
to do the things that they need to do and not have to worry about the connectivity, the security, the technology itself, but really focus on the work and their work experience and their workflows. So you hit on some, you know, I started thinking about this now, right? It's 30 years that Citrix has been doing this, but in the last year, what we've all seen, right? I mean, this has been time like none of us ever expected to see on so many dimensions. What have you been seeing on the business now that you didn't expect in terms of potentially acceleration or other areas of use cases? Well, I'm, you know, it's been, it's been really cool to watch. As you said, I've, I've been around a while and I've seen technology waves change and shift over, you know, the last 20, 30 years. But what I would say now, what the pandemic has proven for everyone, and I think it's true for the way that we manage our business as well, is the future of work that work today is incredibly personal. And especially when you're home, you know, your, your lifeline is your laptop. Being able to work effectively in the time and place and setting that works for you without having to worry and being able to do it, you know, in a manner in which it's beneficial for you as a human being because you're juggling your kids and your home life and you're trying to do all this, you know, within your house. I think that's really important. And so, you know, we have this phraseology that, you know, the future of work is personal and and we really want to make sure that we enable people that where they can grow, they can breathe. And work isn't about a place anymore. Now, we all want to go back to the office. I can't wait for the day that I can go into a conference room. I don't think I would have ever said that before. Yeah. I can't wait for the day <laughs> that I can go back and stand at a whiteboard and try to solve a complex problem. I look forward to that. But the reality is we learned this year that work is not a place. Work is about being flexible and it's about making sure that you have secure access. And increasingly, it's about making sure that you enable your, your employees to have a healthy work-life balance. And I know we've talked about that for many years, but employee well-being and digital wellness, those are things that we've never really talked about to the degree that we're talking about them today. You know, this is so true, rings so true, because in all the interviews I've been doing, right, we've been having this conversation. Well, first of all, we've all been on our screens. We're getting fatigued yeah. right now, right? right? And organizations are really having to deal with this. And a lot of my guests who come to the podcast talk about mindfulness. They talk about personal space. They talk about disengaging from the screen, things that they're doing, you know, strategies that they have. What are, what are, what are some of the things that you're doing or what are some of the things that you recommend to our listeners there? Boundaries. I, I'm a big believer in boundaries. And it's hard, right? Because when your work is in your home and you, it's your lifeline to everything that you do, I think we all have felt compelled to work more hours. It used to be I was traveling 70, 80% of the time, and somehow I was able to be as effective as I am now. But all of a sudden, my calendar has 50, 60 hours of meetings every week. And I think the key as just as a human to be effective is to create some boundaries. These are my work hours. These are my fitness hours. These are my family hours. And of course, we have to be somewhat flexible, but I think the people I see that are the most effective and maybe the least stressed are the ones that are okay with stopping at a fixed time mm. and making sure they have dinner with their families or that they go for a walk or that they eat lunch. You know, I'm hearing so many horror stories of people not going outside, you know, all day or not going for a walk or neglecting their dog or something else at home. And I don't think that's what any company wants. I think they want their employees to be in a good mental and physical space. And I think that's the trick around setting boundaries. 
Yeah, I would agree with you. In fact, you know, been having this conversation around podcasts in general versus video content. And you and I were having a conversation about drive time yeah. just before we got started, right? And audio gives you an opportunity to still stay plugged in in a way, get some learning going in, but then also disengage from the screen, maybe go out in nature, go for a walk, a bike right. ride, exercise, right? And maybe you're still getting some great content that you needed to, material that you needed to digest, but you're getting in a different way. You're giving your eyes a break. Uh, other senses come into play in terms of the learning experience. I so think so. I, I mean, I think I think that's pe- why people love podcasts because it's it's such a portable medium, and I think it does give us the ability to pay attention, but not feel like you have to be on camera all the time. I've seen a couple of studies that this Zoom fatigue is has some real psychology to it. The physiology of our bodies isn't set up to be making 100% eye contact for six hours straight. Yeah. And if, you know, some people are saying, and it happens to me too, you do six hours of video calls and you are exhausted. You haven't done anything, but it's that constant eye contact. It is so gruelingly exhausting. I do, you know, I do workshops for clients and organizations, and I find the four hours is about the maximum amount of time I can go without a break. And it's, uh, yeah. And then I really need a break. Yeah. And increasingly, I'm seeing people, you know, just be honest, like, I'm going to go off camera for this conversation. I really need to concentrate. And, you know, I'm going to take a lot of notes. And if it's okay, I'm just going to go off camera for this one. And I really love it when people do that, because I think it just shows like, hey, I'm going to take care of myself, but this topic is important to me. And I can't maybe do both things at the same time. I I don't want to poo-poo video content. It's been terrific for our experience over the last year in terms of staying connected. I've never met anyone at Citrix that I work with in person, unless I worked with them at a different company. That's amazing. But that's that's so true today. If you just started within the last year in a role. Yeah. And so it's such a blessing. I don't want to, I don't want to be the anti-video guy, but at the same time, there is a point where you've got to find the right modality to, you know, protect yourself and have the right level of energy. So let's talk a little bit more about Citrix in your role, right? So global partner, go-to-market programs leader. What is that role and what do you do? I'm so lucky, and I've been lucky to work at a lot of cool technology companies over the course of my career. Really, what what we want to do is make sure that this 30-year company with millions and millions of users, who's been so incredibly successful and enables this power of remote, remote work and enables the power of this personal work, sets its sights on the future as well. And so part of what I do is focus on how do we bring products to market through channels, through ecosystem partners in scalable, effective ways around the globe. And as you know, the channel is not a single thing. These partner business model types are perpetually evolving. The business models underneath are perpetually changing. You know, we went from an on-premises perpetual license model to a cloud annuity model. We went from channel resell, which was very sort of focused on upfront sales and rebates to annuity contracts that are really around the lifetime value of the customer or customer utilization. And always buying in a cloud model. The trick is we just have to make sure that that's a lot of complexity, but it needs to appear simpler for the customer first and foremost, and then ideally for the partners as well. And so that's a lot of what I've been spending my time on. So you mentioned some changes. I mean, I'll call about the whole shift that's happened in the channel. And we've had Jay McBain on the podcast a couple of times, and you and I have had these conversations. I'm a a fanboy of Jay as well. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. And but, you know, this whole transformation that's going on, like 
what do you see now that's different with the channel? And what is the value proposition that you now have to deliver to them? I think this is true in every business. The pace of change is faster than it's ever been. And I think it's both a opportunity and a challenge for partners. Customers increasingly don't have the time, willingness, or inclination to stress too much about the bits and bytes. They got to go focus on their business outcomes. And I think that's also put some strain on channel partners where maybe you were more of a traditional reseller, but now you've got to go deliver a solution. Or maybe you were a traditional application publisher, but now you need to deliver that as a managed service. And so this whole notion of we used to have relatively discrete swim lanes between a DISTI and a VAR and a reseller and a DMR and a hoster and a blah. Now it, it depends. What does the customer need? I'm going to mm-hmm. deliver the solution that the customer needs. If that means I have to write a little applet, I'll write a little applet. If that means I need to host it, I'll host it. And so part of what we have to do just as a channel community is break through those boundaries of those legacy silos of partner business model types and simplify to what is the customer outcome that we're trying to drive to. So if we're on an elevator and I ask you to tell me your compelling value proposition to these partners, what would you say? I'll start with the the simplest thing. Um, It's all about the customer. We deliver secure remote work to employees wherever they are. The way they work, how they work, when they work. And that's our value prop. So, you know, we've both been around this partnering world for quite some time. And what makes the best partners for you? Like, if I was to ask you, what characteristics makes the best Citrix partner? What would you say? I think just... First of all, I I love this business. I love working with partners. I love what partners can do for vendors because they see around corners. They have these superpowers of customer connectivity and they cut through the clutter in terms of what is needed for a customer. I've spent my entire career in the partner realm and it has been such a joy for me. A few things that I've seen for partners across the time of my career where they're successful. And this is increasingly important in this digital age. The line between being a partner and being a marketer, between being a seller and being a technical advisor, being an implementation partner or a demand generation engine, it's all blending. And so the thing that I've seen where the partners who are the most impactful, I think, for vendors is they really know what their value prop is. And I've done this probably several hundred times with different partners, and it's a, sometimes a painstaking exercise, but I'll, I'll meet them and after we develop some rapport, I'll, I'll kind of do very specific precision questioning. What's your value prop? And the response is almost invariably this, I'm a gold certified partner of vendor Foo. And my response <laughs> is, there's 5,000 of those guys. What do you actually do? Well, yeah. I'm a gold certified vendor a gold certified partner of this vendor, Foo, based in Toronto. Great. There's 500 of those. What do you do? And it sometimes takes a while because they're so focused on trying to appease you as a vendor. But then this magical thing happens. Well, actually, most of our customers are in the mining vertical. And one of the challenges of mining vertical is there's so many different pieces of hardware and machinery. Keeping track of that inventory is really important. So what we really do there is we make sure that there's a proper asset tagging and tracking process. And then I'm like, boom, that's what you do. 
You're the yep. best in the world in the mining vertical around inventory and asset tracking. There's your value prop. And that can be true in a retail vertical. We're the best at inventory management and control for small mid-market retail shops in the Atlantic region. Boom, you've nailed your value prop. Or I, I work in automotive manufacturing in Detroit. I really focus on tier two suppliers. And the most important thing that we do is ensure that they have just-in-time inventory, which is both just-in-time inventory as well as cash flow. Boom, they nailed their value prop. And too often, what you find is partners want to please everyone. They don't want to miss an opportunity. And they're afraid if they go specifically into a vertical or a solution or a purchasing center that somehow they're missing those opportunities. But what I have seen is people will say, oh, you do inventory control for tier two automotive suppliers? Wow, I know GM is really difficult on this. They really expect a lot from their suppliers. I too have a problem around inventory management. It's a different industry, but could you help me there? Of course. Yep. You know, I, I refer to this as what's that one thing? Yeah. You, right? It's the one thing. Yeah, for sure. The, the second thing that I would say is once they know their value prop, they really know it and they can articulate it. Not just I'm the gold certified partner of Foo, which is it's important, sure. The second piece where I've seen partners really separate themselves in the last I'd say seven or eight years, and really in the last three years, is they embrace digital marketing. And a lot of partners that maybe grew up as time and materials consultants, they have a visceral negative reaction when I bring this up. Yeah. But what I will say is, Jay, we just talked about Jay McBain. Jay has this survey where Forrester believes 68% of customer technology buying decisions is done digitally online before they end up in a vendor or partner's sales cycle. So almost 70% of the time, if you don't have a digital presence, you've already been taken out of the purchasing decision. That's right. It's amazing, right? And he also talks about the five seats at the table, right? right. Are you influencing those five people that are sitting at the table helping me make the decision? But, but what I'll say is, and, and it, this is one of those funny things where our partners, partners are such smart people. I mean, people who take the risk to go build a partnering business, wherever they are in the equation, they're typically incredibly smart people, but there's this thing about marketing where it's a little bit more magic and, and alchemy than they're used to, but don't be afraid. There are powerful tools out there. There are great vendors out there. Landing your value prop, embracing SEO and SEM, developing digital content, embracing video. Nobody, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you have to begin to make that impact. And I see lots of particular partners that grew up as technologists, they want it perfect on day one. Mm. And the market right now is so forgiving in terms of testing the messaging. And you know, we know in marketing, A-B testing is happening all the time. That's where you've got to make that leap of faith. And one question I always ask partners is, who's leading your marketing effort? And if a small partner, oftentimes I'll hear, well, we don't actually have a marketing person or I have a guy that does my website for me. And I'm like, well, that's problem number one. And that's where you have to go dive in. Yeah. The third thing I would say that, that really sets partners apart. So they, they know their value prop and it's super crystal clear and they're, they, can, they can use that to drive adjacencies. Second, they dive in on marketing and they get super passionate about it and they see the value. And it takes time, but marketing can be incredibly powerful. And then the third one, which is kind of part and parcel of the first two, is they change. And this is what I really love about working with partners. Partners can change a lot faster than vendors can. 
partners can pivot. Partners can pivot for a customer. Partners can pivot for a vertical. They can pivot for a, a market opportunity. And when they embrace that change, the partners that I see rise to the top are the ones that are agile. And I think that's just a core element of being able to deliver what the customer needs, even if it's something that you've never done before. Agility is so important right now. And I want to touch on this again, because you know we're talking about this transformation, right? And the challenges that partners face pivoting. You know, it's, it's okay for a Citrix or one of the big hyperscalers like AWS or Microsoft to pivot because they're huge organizations and they can do it more. They can have more agility, right? They can invest in an area. What have you seen from an agility perspective in terms of the challenges that partners have faced during this last year? I think one of the big challenges that, that partners have had this year, but also in prior years, is the cost structure of a lot of these partnerships has changed. It used to be in a traditional resell model, the margin was made on the upfront of the deal when you're selling a perpetual license. You resourced it appropriately with pre-sales engineers that were very super qualified and highly technical. And your cost model was sort of predicated on that. And then you would do your service delivery over a period of time. In a cloud model, there's no initial big upfront sale generally. It comes in drips and drabs monthly, and the real profitability comes in year two or three. And the partners that pivot that cost structure so that they understand that the cash flow shift happens, that's probably the most difficult thing that I've seen partners have to deal with. In this past year, I think the other thing that I've seen just be challenging, and it's a little bit of a double click, and this is true for everyone, by the way, it was all about cash flow. We didn't know, you know, if we go back a year ago, I think I was doing a, a presentation on this topic. We didn't know how long this pandemic was going to last. We didn't know what was going to happen with the economy. We didn't know. And everybody was hoarding cash because they just didn't know. And what I think a lot of companies realized was our business is so predicated on this positive cash flow and having a cash reserve that now that that old conversation of do I go to the cloud or don't I go to the cloud, CapEx versus OpEx, it disappeared. It actually disappeared this year. There's no more conversation of do I go to the cloud, don't I go to the cloud. It's what's my billable cost for this business outcome. And I almost never hear customers talk about the cloud anymore. They might talk about burning some cloud credits with one of the hyperscalers. They might talk about some of the underlying technologies, but more often than not, they're trying to get to that monthly billable deliverable for their business outcome. Yeah, it's exactly what I've been seeing as well. You're seeing organizations that you didn't expect to see move to this subscription model as well. I think yeah. you know, we've had a conversation with Jay on this on this topic. IBM jettisoning its services business, organizations like Cisco and the like, all moving to these new models. And so the, the partners all, all need to pivot now, and they are. It seems like they're doing a much more agile, to use your word, job than even I expected to see. What do you think? I do. I mean, I think, you know, you see this, I, we used to talk about this democratization of IT, but I think there's this democratization of subscription that's happening. Think about our lives. Most of the services that we think about in our lives, be they music or video or content, it's all about some subscription. It's, you know, it's, it's forecastable, it's repeatable, you know what's happening. And increasingly, I think businesses are looking for that subscription mentality, that subscription approach. 
And then they can think about, okay, this is the impact on my cash flow. It just gives the ability of a business owner to really think about the business outcome rather than having to go spend a bunch of time on a maybe a bigger legacy monolithic IT build out. So, you know, I, we've been talking about this whole channel. You and I have had some conversations over a period of time about what's been happening in the channel and, you know, and channel organizations in general. And I'd like to spend a few moments here, right? Because you and I have both been in channel chief type roles. I I came out with a manifesto stating why I feel and I believe firmly that partnership is going to be the key ingredient to growth and ultimately survival for organizations, right? It's the key accelerant, I believe, especially in the world that we live in today. Why do you think organizations still struggle with the value and importance of their channel models and their organizations and even their channel leaders? Why do you think that's so? I used to work with Ross Brown. I think you know Ross Brown. Ross Brown wrote this amazing blog several years ago that I go back to at least once a quarter that talks about the six hats of the channel chief. And I think one of the biggest challenges is the nomenclature. We can talk about channel. Increasingly, we're talking about ecosystems. I think what it used to be is you'd have these silos of you're a product person, you're a marketing person, you're an ops person, you're the partner guy or girl, you're the salesperson, you're the renewals person. What happens in this indirect motion is it's all of those. It's all six or seven of those roles. And where we do ourselves a disservice sometimes as channel teams is we stay in our channel silo talking about channels. But if we think about what we're really doing, we're an indirect sales motion or an indirect route to market that can scale as fast or slow as you like and almost as infinitely as you like. And if you're talking to a CFO or a COO, and you say, I can go open up a new market for you tomorrow with no headcount and a limited operating cost, they're going to say, I'm all in. If I showed up to the same guy and said, we need to go build a channel for this and it's going to do this, they may get lost in that conversation. So I really like to zoom back out and kind of take some of those principles that I learned from Ross, which is this is about an indirect sales motion. It's no different than if you set up an inside sales team, an outbound DMR team, SMB team, a mid-market team, or even an enterprise team. It's another sales team. It just happens to have a multiplier effect that is far beyond the number of employees that you may have. I'll use a good example. You know, We both grew up at Microsoft. If you think about Microsoft, frankly, they're pretty small organization relative to their market cap and their, their place in the market. Why are they successful? Because something like 95% of their business is facilitated through some channel partner. That 80,000 or so employees or 100,000 employees or so, I don't know what the number is these days, they punch so far above their weight. They probably have five to 10 million feet on the street selling Microsoft at any given point. And it's because they scale through an ecosystem. I'm smiling right now, Mark, because I so get this. And it's funny what, because I do a lot of work with co-selling. You know, you'll have organizations that are much, much smaller than Microsoft, but have very yeah. large sales teams. And they expect the same on Microsoft side. And I have to, you know, have them step back from or reset their expectations around, you know, there's only a handful of account executives in this particular patch, you know, yeah. whether it be a geography or a market vertical. They have other resources that support it, and those are funded, you know, and so on. To your point, 
they do punch way above their weight because they leverage their channel so effectively. Yeah. And for a small company, it's even worse too, because it's like every time you hire an FTE at a small company, you're making a big commitment. You're taking on their salary, you're taking on their overhead, and you may have several months before you know whether or not that was a good hire. Let's say that FTE cost you $150,000. What if you took that $150,000 and you were able to spread it across potentially 50 sellers with a partner organization by you know, doing an incentive or doing enablement or doing something else, and you can test that sales motion across those 50 or 100 sellers, that might be more valuable than just adding one new hire. That's not to say people shouldn't have FTEs. Of course they should. But my point is sometimes, oftentimes I see that scaling through that partner or series of partners gives you the ability to extend your reach, but also learn in new ways more than a single individual new employee might be able to. So your advice for our channel chiefs is change the conversation with the CFO, right? Totally. Yeah, change the paradigm. I have this thing, and it's a bit provocative that I often do, is I'll show up with a business case that doesn't have the word channel, ecosystem, partner, or anything like that on it. CFO, COO, here's an opportunity for us to go win this, whatever, $10 million TAM. And here's what I need from you in terms of that investment, less than 3%. I guarantee you, you'll have a return on that investment within 18 months or whatever that is. Invariably, they say yes. Then I say, okay, and we're going to scale this out through a partner ecosystem. You hear that, channel chiefs out there? <laughs> Make sure we, we get a megaphone out here on this conversation, Mark. I love it. It is incredibly effective. You know, again, you, you know, if you show up and you're the channel guy and you're saying that they kind of read between the lines, but you know, just a single piece of paper sometimes where you just simplify it and say, this is the cost, this is the return, this is the scale, this is the reach, this is the efficacy that you can achieve. It's amazing when you change the conversation to their goals as a CFO. It's, you know, it's the cost management, return on value, overall profitability of the company. And you work your way back. If it's a COO in terms of operational efficiency and you work your way back, that conversation becomes very different. And for a chief marketing officer as well, you're extending the reach, yes. right? Yeah. So all the value there. So great of a conversation. I love it, Mark. I want to pivot though. As you might know from listening to other episodes, I am fascinated by how people got to this spot in their career. And you've had an amazing career as well. So I'd like to spend a few moments on you and you know some of the things that you learned along this journey, this great career journey of yours, advice that you might have received or attributes that you learned from mentors and, and the like. Yeah, this is a good question. I, I like talking about technology. I'm not sure I'm always good at talking about myself, but I think there's three things in my career that have sort of established who I am and the way I think about the world. I did not start in technology. I grew up in a small town in Michigan, and my first job from the time I was 16 to 19 or so was working in a family-owned independent grocery store, IGA in Parchment, Michigan. And it was a family-owned company. Um, the parents worked there. The siblings worked there. And what I learned in that role was a couple of things, and it's so basic. First of all, show up. In the time that I was there, I probably saw 100 different employees cycle through that small grocery store. And more often than not, it was because they couldn't show up on time. And there was something about just showing up, which was important. The second thing that I learned, and, and it was interesting, they gave me a lot of responsibility at such a young age, but I, I owned the inventory for canned goods. 
And I learned a lot about inventory management turns and the impact on cash flow. And at the time, I thought I was just making sure that I kept my shelves stocked and didn't have any inventory in the back room. But what I realized was that was a life lesson for everything that we do. The third thing I learned in that grocery store experience was the customer matters. So if I was out stocking shelves at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday night and I had to get so many cases of products up on the shelf and a customer came up, my number one priority was not stocking the shelf. My number one priority was making sure the customer got whatever they needed and they felt good about that experience. And that was such a foundational experience for me. How cool is that? Yeah. I mean, in the moment, you know, I feel like it was just like the hustle to, you know, be able to afford a cool 1968 Camaro and be able to go to the sock hop or whatever. But as I look back on it, it was so foundational for me. You know, I love those life lessons. And I remember the IGA stores too, like just the independent grocery stores. And it sounds like such a great little small town that you grew up in. It sounds idyllic to me. Well, and, and then, I mean, the other one, and I'll, I'll just go back in the time machine a little bit, and I don't want to age myself too much, but this particular town that I grew up in, Parchment, Michigan, it was a, called the Paper City. And it was renowned because there were, in this particular area, there were tons of paper mills. And um, I was lucky enough during college to be able to get a job working in the paper mills. I was in the union, United Paper Workers uh, 1010, Parchment, Michigan. And working at a big factory like that, you learn a lot as well. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen a big paper manufacturing machine, but it is about the length of a football field and about five stories high. And it's this big, hot, wheel-spinning machine that's constantly running. And it starts with this sort of slurry of wet paper pulp or wet pulp on one end of the football field, goes through all of these levers and, and rolls, and comes out on the other side as a really clean sheet of paper. Highly... A dangerous place to work. But but what you what I learned in that particular lesson was if that machine went down, you are impacting four or five hundred people in that building. And all of a sudden, if one part of that machine went down, everybody would had to stop working. Hmm. And it could take times four, five, six hours to get it up and running again. And that lesson comes back to me time and time again when I'm working with companies, what downtime can do to your business. And that was an amazing life lesson as well. Yeah, it's like don't let people down because yeah, you could really impact. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's you know it's true with everything, right? You know, when when you if you have downtime, if it's an inventory problem, if it's a machinery problem, if it's unplanned maintenance, these are all things that technology can help us with, particularly with smart sensors and AI and ML. But increasingly, th- those losses can be substantial, and it really can impact a company. And so it was, again, another one of those, I was learning through the hustle. But if I reflect on it now, sort of understanding how a manufacturer works and what the impacts are really foundational for me. So really great reflections, Mark, there. So you know, have any of that, has any of that trickled into what I would call a personal philosophy that guides or propels you forward? Like if we had a billboard here, yeah. like what would you project out to the world? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, so I think that showing up thing, I think, you know, if I go back to the, the, the ethos that I that I received, you know, kind of growing up and, and the things I was just talking about, certainly it's, you know, 90% of it is turning up, turning up, having a good attitude and, and taking your responsibility. I think that's really important. But what I would say is what I've realized in maybe the last 10 years of my career, and especially this past year, especially this past year, is it's all about people. The billboard would say something like, and I'll, I'll borrow this phrase, I, I've seen it attributed to different people. I, I always like 
when Robin Williams would say this, but everyone's fighting a battle you can't see, so be kind always. Now, you know me. I'm a very direct guy. So you, you may not think of me as the kindest person. So Brene Brown nets it out this way. She has this phrase that says, clear is kind. Me being very direct, me being very clear on what our expectations are, being very clear on the agreement between you and I on a particular task, that's the kindest thing I can do for you. If I leave you in amb ambiguity or confusion or unclarity, I've done you an unkindness. So everyone's fighting a battle you can't see. Be kind always. And a way to be kind is to be incredibly clear. I love that. I love Brene Brown and I love clear is the way to be kind. Is that the way you would phrase it? Yeah, that's what it's actually a little, she has it as a little digital image that you can download that I have on my wall. I printed it out and it just says clear is kind. I think it's so true and so valid today, especially. We need to be clear in our communications. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, you know, you see this in meetings. Sometimes we're so worried about being nice to everyone, but we let the meeting go on or maybe that same topic, you know, reoccurs five, six, seven, eight times when in fact, if you could have just been clear at the outset and maybe not as warm fuzzy, you could actually have saved people hours and hours of work or sometimes weeks of work. And let's go into this, like knowing what the expectations are from both sides, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I love creativity. It's one of my favorite things is to sort of brainstorm, but I posted something yesterday and one of my weird hobbies from the pandemic is I started to do puzzles. And if you think about a puzzle, I mean, I think most people, 99% of the people, they start with the edges. They, they go through and they, they find the, the edge pieces, they set the frame, and then the project becomes filling in the pieces in the middle. And there's a lot of creativity and thinking that goes into that as you're imagining how these pieces go together. Do I sort it by color? Do I sort it by shape? Do I sort it by lighting? You know, it depends on what the scene is in the particular puzzle. But once you set the frame, the rest becomes much easier. I saw that post and I am in 100% in violent agreement with you on that as well. Setting the frame. I think about it in terms of like, let's set the set of expectations around the partnership too. It kind of transfers over there. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's, the, yeah. that's what the partner business plan is supposed to do. And I would just say, if, you, if you're a partner, take those things seriously because these vendors invest so much time and energy in their coverage model. If you have a PAM or a telepam or a partner manager or an alliance manager, they set all the structure around the business plan because it's important the way they're doing their business. But too often, however, I see instances where people think of the partner business plan as an exercise, an academic exercise. But that partner business plan is setting the frame. Here's our shared goals. Here's how we're going to work together. Here's how we're going to remediate issues. Here's how we're going to keep score. Exactly. And also let's outline when we're not getting to green, like yeah. I use a scorecarding methodology. Like what's, what's blocking us? We don't have those conversations necessarily. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's almost like just establishing rules in a game. Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't go to, well, maybe we would, but we wouldn't go play, play soccer on a soccer pitch with no lines. We wouldn't go to a tennis court with no net. And so part of it is like, let's establish some just base rules of how we're going to collaborate in this particular project. And then let's make sure that we chunk through that. Yeah. And if it's not going well, let's have that conversation. I mean, it's okay to walk away from a, I had this conversation with Dr. Michael Gervais. It's okay. As long as we have the conversation and we were clear to each other about why it's not working. Man, that guy is amazing. He is. You turned me on to him. <laughs> I'm such a fan. And the thing I love about it is it's just be honest, be honest, be clear. 
decide and then and then move on and it makes perfect sense but when he puts it together it's just so magical and focus yeah so you know we are hopefully going to be coming out of this time like no other at some point vaccinations and you know life in the world will open up and you know when that happens, you might be hosting a dinner party or if you were going to host a dinner party at that point, and you could invite any three guests to that party from the present or the past to join this amazing dinner party, who would you invite, Mark, and why? Gosh, it's such a great question. I could probably spend a couple of weeks contemplating that. That might be my mental exercise behind the scenes. Let me give this a go. Here's three people that I really admire a lot. I would invite Spike Lee the movie director. I would invite Walter Isaacson, the renowned biographer of Einstein, yeah. Da Vinci, Jobs, Ben Franklin. And just because I grew up there and it's the seminal experience of my life and I've loved watching the way he's changed over the years, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, yeah. So Walter Isaacson, Spike Lee, and Bill Gates. What, yeah. an, what a diverse group that is. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I should probably... Um, I should probably amend it a little bit. Grace Hopper is another person that just fascinates me in terms of one of the founders of modern computing. So if I could get another, I would add Grace Hopper. Grace Hopper. Okay, well, we'll get four at the table. What would they talk about? What do you think the conversation would be about? The, The interesting thing is you look at this list, they're all innovators in their own way. Walter Isaacson has dug deep on real innovators. You know, Ben Franklin, Da Vinci, Einstein, uh, Steve Jobs. He's really seems to be fascinated by people that innovate. Gates is the most renowned innovator, I guess, of our time in some ways. Spike Lee is an innovator in terms of the way he shoots movies and change cinema, all, going back all the way to, to Do the Right Thing or School Days. Yep. I think they would talk about change and innovation and what's next and you know, if you've watched that Bill Gates three-part series on Netflix, uh, Inside Inside Bill Gates' Mind, Inside Bill Gates, whatever it is, it's amazing to see the way they dive into those topics because they're areas of innovation that I would have never imagined. And so for me, I would I would really enjoy that conversation. And we'll provide links to the Bill Gates Netflix documentary as well for our listeners. I... Oh, it's so good. But yeah, and also in the notes, and if you can do... Brene Brown, if people don't know, I mean, I think everybody knows Brene Brown now, but if you added her initial TED Talk, it is, it's life-changing. And she also has a Netflix special as well. We'll get links there as well. So Mark, this has been a terrific conversation. It's exceeded my expectations. So great to have you finally on Ultimate Guide to Partnering. I'm so humbled. Thank you so much for the time. Well, if you have any closing comments for our, our listeners and some of the partners out there on how they might optimize for success the rest of this year. Yeah. I, I think I would just, I think I would, I would say three things. Put the customer at the center of everything that you do and everything becomes simple. And that's true for partners and it's increasingly true for vendors. We live in a very complex interconnected world and it's very easy to get stuck in a specific gap or detail, but something magical happens when you put the customer at the center and you work the problem backwards. The second piece of advice I would give is get excited and dive in on marketing. Marketing will be your superpower and differentiator. Marketing will be your superpower and your differentiator between 
you and your competition. And I guess I would say the last thing is, and, and I probably mean this, well, the last thing I would say, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, take care of yourself. I know that we all feel compelled to work really hard for our families, for our companies, for our employees. But I see a lot of people who are overworked, overtired, overstressed, and you're doing everyone a disservice by not taking care of yourself. So go yeah. take a walk, go to the gym, take a nap, get the right level of sleep, eat properly. These basic things, people are counting on you. So take care of yourself. And by taking care of yourself, you'll take care of your people. Such great advice. Such great advice, Marks. Thank you so much for being a guest, such an excellent guest on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering. Thank you so much, Vince. I really enjoyed it. This is a bucket list item for me, and I'm just so excited to tick this one off. And I look forward to any time I have an opportunity to speak with you. Thank you as well. Thanks, man. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page, or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Ultimate Partnerships. Ultimate Partnerships helps you get the most results from your partnerships. Get partnerships right, optimize for success, deliver results. For more information, go to ultimate-partnerships.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzione. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.